This is Addiction Medicine Journal Club. I'm Dr. Sonia Del Tredici. And I'm Dr. John Keenan. We believe that addiction is a disease that can be treated, and we want to help you stay up to date with the latest research that you can use in your addiction medicine practice. So this week, we are going to be discussing an article that's got the potential to be very useful to PCPs about polypharmacy. So John, how are you doing? I'm doing good today. You know, I wanted to say, well, I had a couple of seconds here to talk about like a really awesome CME program I just did recently that was totally free. So in the past, we talked about kind of progression of care for people that take care of uh, patients with substance use disorder. And kind of naturally, we progressed into hepatitis C treatment. I think we've talked about that in previous podcasts, especially it's something that we really kind of can somewhat easily demystify. Um, Well, I kind of took that a step further for the care of HIV patients and the Mid-Atlantic AIDS Education and Training Center. They had this amazing three-day CME event. Two days were virtual, one day in person also with Drexel's Partnership for Comprehensive Care Practice. Um, And the series really kind of demystified what I think is a very intimidating topic, and that's kind of HIV medication and heart therapy, something that previously was kind of in the wheelhouse of infectious disease. I think it's kind of moving into these kind of Ryan White-funded clinics. I think kind of the next step with some kind of simplified treatment algorithms, I think into the primary care physician's office as well. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, it was great. Um, like I said, super intimidating beforehand, really broken down well. They had some excellent lectures, um, kind of a couple shout outs. Uh, Dr. David Corrin, who's a pharmacist at Temple University, did a basically a two-hour overview of antiretroviral therapy and really kind of almost kind of lifted the fog on that topic, which is very broad and somewhat overwhelming when you look at the list of drugs um, and really kind of demystified that quite a bit. Dr. Amy Althoff from Drexel did a great lecture on kind of the first visit for a patient that has acquired HIV and how to kind of initiate treatment. Um, And I have to give a shout out to Dr. Nick Seville at the uh, Comprehensive Care Practice at Drexel, who kind of dealt with me being like a 38-year-old medical student for the day with him, uh, asking questions and picking his brain all day. And he was very gracious about it. So super great CME event, totally free. um, And something I think that honestly, anyone listening to this podcast could provide. Do you feel you could now treat patients who have HIV? Yeah, I'm going to actually start uh, scavenging back a couple of my current patients that drive long distances to their HIV care provider and just consolidate it into our house. I think that's awesome. In my mind, I'm probably still stuck in what I learned in residency and HIV treatment seemed extremely complicated and the realm of only super specialists, but I'm sure it's a lot simpler now. Yeah, it is. I think it's like many things, just like the hepatitis C treatment that used to be in the realm of the hepatologists and the infectious disease doctors, these kind of simplified treatment regimens. Also, a lot of these kind of pharmaceutical multi-drug pills where it's one pill for the day really kind of guides ease of treatment. Did they say anything about HIV rates? Is HIV increasing? I did look at the statistics of it before, and actually it's increasing in certain populations, but decreasing as a whole, at least in the United States. It really gave me pause this year because for the first time since training, I diagnosed two people with HIV this year, and I haven't had anyone with new onset HIV since back in the, I guess I finished residency in 2007. That was the last time I had anyone with new onset HIV before this year. So it made me wonder if like rates are going up in our area. You know, a couple of practical things that actually I learned because they had other breakout sessions I thought was interesting to share. Um, they had data about how um, Neisseria meningitis vaccine actually does provide some immunity against gonorrhea. So I had no idea of that beforehand. 
Also, they were talking about some data from the health department in Philadelphia that if you're only kind of STI testing from a single site, you could be missing up to 40 to 50% of cases of STI. So really, you're supposed to be kind of like triple swabbing every orifice that's used. And that's something I want to be quite 100% transparent. I have not been doing up until this point in time, but certainly definitely interesting food for thought. Well, that is really cool. And I think this is the true mark of a family doctor. You're just willing to jump in and basically tackle new things, treat anything that's in your wheelhouse. Yeah, I'll keep you updated as this goes along. I was thinking, and this is kind of relevant, like how to get more primary care doctors doing some stuff that's new to them and maybe maybe different. And I wanted to ask you what you think about how to get more PCPs into prescribing buprenorphine. The barriers to doing this have been falling one by one. There's no X waiver. There's no recommendation that you have to force people into counseling. Now there's not even barrier of insurance coverage. Everybody seems to cover it. You know, there was a paper that just came out, and this is what made me think about it, showing that in states that removed prior auth requirements for buprenorphine, you know, doctors love to complain about how we can't do what we want to do because of prior auths. Um, So they showed that in states that eliminated prior auths, there was no increase in buprenorphine prescriptions. So even though it became easier, that did not increase access or prescribing of buprenorphine. So the excuse that patients weren't getting the treatment because of insurance barriers, that did not hold water. So basically, the only barrier left, honestly, I think is stigma. So, you know, doctors have a lot of autonomy. You can always choose not to treat something, but in general, in primary care, you're expected to treat the diseases seen most often in primary care. I mean, I don't know, I guess I could say like, I don't treat diabetes or I don't treat asthma and I refer every single patient to a specialist with those diagnoses, but then I wouldn't actually be doing my job. And I kind of feel like opioid use disorder needs to move into that realm of just it's expected in primary care. You will treat opioid use disorder. That's just part of primary care. So I don't know, John, full disclosure, are there any diagnoses that you would refuse to treat that like are in the primary care skill set, but you say like, I just, I'm punting on this. I'm not doing it. I can't think of anything off the top of my head. I think there's diseases that hit a level that I don't feel comfortable with. I think that, you know, um, mm-hmm. and I, I think it was like two recently that have come up that like in my practices, kind of this switch to rhythm management. A lot of the anti-arrhythmics I feel like need, uh, you know, an electrophysiologist to kind of um, collaborate with. So I think I do refer a lot out for electrophysiology, um, just with the switch to rhythm control for atrial fibrillation. And then I think a lot of these immunomodulators for rheumatoid conditions, like certainly I'll do plaquenil or methotrexate, but beyond that, I, I don't have a comfort level with those new meds. And it's really tough because a lot of people are on them and then their rheumatologist leaves and asks me to take over. So I think those are the only two. Yeah. I, I do feel more optimistic about this than you, though, a little bit, I think. I think that some of the previous barriers for, for why some of our older docs don't treat, I do think that they didn't have this training, right? I don't think they were as in tune to this. It wasn't integrated in medical school. It wasn't integrated as core curriculum as the ACA GME has done in some of the specialties. So I think as we have like newer docs entering the field and kind of the changing of the guard, I think that this is going to become expected. Well, it will, but... It just, it's like takes so long. And I, I feel like those older docs, like just that you didn't learn it in med school is not a great excuse. I had to learn all kinds of new stuff this year. Hey, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with that. I'm, I'm just telling you, I'm just telling you, I think that this, I think this is going to be a self-resolving problem with time. 
<laughs> eventually, eventually. And the newer group just looks at it differently, right? Yeah. It's not this antagonistic relationship that it once was for, for in the majority of cases. Sometimes it still is because there's a behavioral component that kind of causes safety issues in a select group of patients. But I think the average person without kind of a, a threatening behavior issue or kind of threat of violence, I, I think that actually people are much more sympathetic to that person than they used to be. Well, yeah. And maybe it's like the HIV, the tools have become easier to use. The treatment is simplified. Many patients, the patients I actually find are easier to handle now than they were before. And I don't think it's just me. Like buprenorphine seems easier to prescribe than it used to be. So maybe it's becoming simpler and easier for people to pick up. All right. I'll, I'll remain optimistic. The future's bright, Sonia. <laughs> are you ready to tell us about this week's article? So the article we got, and I'll be honest with you, kind of full disclosure before we start, this actually, uh, the results of this article do kind of challenge some of my previous kind of biases in prescribing. So I think it's something that everyone's going to really take something out of. So the article is called Non-Fatal Overdose Risk Associated with Prescribing Opioid Agonists Concurrently with Other Medications, Cohort Study Conducted Using Linked Primary Care, Secondary Care, and Mortality Records, and it's from Addiction 2023. A little bit of background, long-term opioid use has been associated with elevated non-fatal and fatal overdose risk. Comorbid conditions in polypharmacy may elevate overdose risk among patients who inject drugs. Despite guidelines recommending careful prescribing or deprescribing of benzodiazepines, gabapentinoids, and Z-drugs, so Zolpiclam, Zolopon, and Zolpidem, Due to potential CNS depressant effect during co-administration with opioids, they remain commonly co-prescribed. This study was from the UK. So in England and Wales, the number of deaths involving benzodiazepines, gabapentinoids, and Z-drugs has increased with 81% of overdose deaths with these three substances also involving opioids. So they're co-administration overdoses in most cases. Opioid agonist therapy is often used and considered gold standard for the treatment of opioid use disorder. Recent studies have shown associations between benzodiazepines, gabapentinoids, and Z-drug prescribing and increased fatal overdose risk among opioid agonist therapy recipients. It has been postulated that the concomitant use of these higher-risk drug classes and opioid agonist therapy may stimulate a physical response such as CNS depression, respiratory depression, severe cardiac events, or increased risk of drug relapse, increasing overdose risk. What do you think about that background? Do you feel like this is kind of the current climate we live in, Sonia? I do. I don't know if there's more or less polypharmacy in the UK, but I really worry about polypharmacy. I think we are a little too free with the sedatives. I mean, I I feel like I see patients using what I view as super potent drugs off-label, you know, antipsychotics for basic insomnia, high-dose gabapentin for musculoskeletal pain. Um, all these high-dose anticonvulsants for anxiety, the Z-drugs. I don't prescribe benzodiazepines along with buprenorphine, so I don't see that combo in my own practice very much, but I see it in the data, and I really worry about it. I do strongly believe that polypharmacy, you know, mixing drugs and mixing drugs and pharmaceuticals is a primary cause of overdose. So what is the clinical question here? It's what is the non-fatal overdose risk during co-prescription of opioid agonist therapy with benzodiazepines, antipsychotics, antidepressants, gabapentinoids, Z-drugs, and opioids. The second question is, what was the difference in non-fatal overdose risk between periods of time when opioid agonist therapy was co-prescribed with other drugs compared to treatment periods involving only opioid agonist therapy? So kind of a pre and post using as their own controls. 
What is the difference between overdose risk between methadone and buprenorphine recipients among patients on opioid agonist therapy with and without the receipt of higher risk medications? So comparing the opioid component is methadone or buprenorphine co-prescription safer? I think those are pretty valid questions and very kind of patient oriented in terms of the outcomes. Good outcomes. Good question. Interested to hear what they found. So this study, it was a retrospective cohort study utilizing anonymous longitudinal electronic health records from general practices in the clinical practice research database. It's called the CPRD for 20,898 patients with methadone or buprenorphine between January 1st, 1998 and December 31st, 2017 linked to hospital episode statistics admitted patients. That's called HES APC records. Neighborhood and practice level index of multiple deprivation quintiles and mortality data from the Office of National Statistics. Interestingly, I thought this was kind of um, extra bang for your buck. This CPRD database, it comprises two databases in the UK. It's basically this gold and arm database, which cover a total of 19% of the UK population. So it's a pretty large database. And actually, previously, it has also been validated to be very broadly representative of the UK population based upon like a a well-distributed distribution of age, gender, and ethnicity. So this isn't like a biased database of just kind of, you know, one race, very affluent people from a private insurance database or uh, like a a state US database where it represents a a patient with kind of a lower socioeconomic status. So this is a really kind of nice, broad, bell-shaped representation of the UK population. Right. That's good. I think we had done another paper before where the data was drawn from a database that was designed to represent the U.S. population. Same kind of thing, rather than, like you said, a database that's kind of through insurances or somehow tilted in one direction or another. Inclusion criteria, age 18 to 64, and receipt of a prescription of methadone or buprenorphine. And that was considered the index event. And they used 14 days as kind of the prescription date to the next 14 days inclusion of a, of a period of time. That's due to kind of the UK prescribing limitations that kind of limit 14 days prescription for these products. The end of participant observation period was defined as switching to an alternative opioid agonist, so methadone to buprenorphine or buprenorphine to methadone, migration to an alternative general practice location, so kind of lost to their database. The last entry in the database was also the end of the observation period, the end of the study period, or death. So those are the, where the data would terminate. Exposure was uh, opioid agonist prescription with receipt at least one of the following drugs. They were classified as, quote, exposed. So if you received a benzodiazepine, a Z drug, or an opioid, they use seven days as the window of period of time that you were kind of under co-prescription with those uh, medications. And if you received a gabapentinoid, an antipsychotic, or an antidepressant, they chose 14 days. They were classified as unexposed during periods of time when the recipient received only a prescription for opioid agonist therapy. So this kind of served as like an own reference group. The outcomes of interest were non-fatal overdose, and this was used kind of are collected via ICD-10 codes from this HES-APC database. And they use kind of the following codes to kind of account non-fatal overdose. So mental and behavioral disorders due to psychoactive substance, accidental poisoning or self-harm, poisoning by drugs of undetermined intent, or poisoning by uh, drugs, including opioids. And I saved you the the boringness of actually what those codes were numbered, but those are kind of our our typical ICD-10 codes. Thank you for saving us the boringness. That's the point of Journal Club. You take all the boring so that the audience doesn't have to. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we're going to keep the statistical analysis because it's kind of relatively important just to understand how they kind of analyze this. So statistical analysis, 
They use what's called a negative binomial regression model where they develop what's called uh, estimated weight ratios for non-fatal overdose. And it's basically a, a weighted relative risk is kind of how I would look at that. And it's for patiently co-prescription with opioid agonist therapy with the benzodiazepines, antipsychotics, gabapentinoids, antidepressants, Z-drugs, or opioids compared to periods where patients were only receiving the opioid agonists. Is this trial valid? So um, I'm going to kind of go through why I think this was actually a, a very valid trial. It was uh, funded by the National Institute of Health and Care Research, the NIHR, uh, the Greater Manchester Patient Safety Translational Research Center. So kind of non-industry funding in terms of the study itself. Two authors did have multiple disclosures regarding funding, very extensive, basically the UK National Treatment Agency for Substance Misuse. But they also had several kind of industry-funded research grants. It sounds like they were non-product related, but more kind of like um, scholarly in nature. But still, they did receive funding from Reckitt, uh, Bexinger, Lundbeck, uh, Martindale Pharma, Britannia Pharmaceuticals, Abbevie, Amaral, L. Lilly, Janssen, and Novartis. So I, I feel kind of differently about when I see that than I used to, just knowing, having worked in kind of a research setting before, it's not uncommon for an academic physician to derive research grants from multiple funding to fund things. So I, I don't see like strong industry bias just because that's listed from one of the authors. It's a large national database derived cohort study of 20,898 patients receiving opioid agonist therapy. Like I talked before, I love the fact this clinical practice research data link has previously been like validated as like a good cross section of the UK population. Typical database limitations apply to this study. If it wasn't coded, it wasn't captured. I often kind of struggle, especially with kind of ER codes. In my other job, I, I do look a lot at kind of ER documentation review cases where kind of possibly there's area for improvement. And I think oftentimes the poor ER docs really struggle sometimes to find a code for whatever they encounter. And I think sometimes these kind of poisoning or overdose codes are, are used as a wastebasket. This is just totally anecdotal from me reviewing charts. Um, but I think that sometimes anyone that has any kind of adverse effect, even not an overdose, but like an intolerance to a medication, they don't have a code for that. So they'll often use something like accidental ingestion or non-intentional overdose, at least, you know, kind of at our institution, I've seen that done. Well, and it's not, it's not just these crazy things. Like I, I really struggled to place a referral to general surgery today because someone had a weird lumpy scab on their shin that maybe had a foreign body in it, but I couldn't find it. And I, I tried to put wound and I couldn't do it. And I, I tried to put foreign body and it kept asking me what orifice the foreign body was in. I was like, oh, God, you know, I think in, in the end I put leg pain <laughs> and referred the person to surgery. I'm sure that general surgeon loves that referral. It got denied. <laughs> So possible bias and confounding of substance use disorder severity. So, you know, just one thing, like this is derived from PCP databases. So like a lot of this is people being treated in the office that might kind of subselect for a, a milder form of substance use disorder as opposed to kind of an institutionalized setting. You know, uh, interestingly, it was very heavy with methadone in this as opposed to buprenorphine. Um, there's a lack of uh, psychiatric hospitalization data. So we don't know about the most mentally ill people that were being treated as part of, you know, a ward of the state or someone that was basically had a, an admission against their will for a mental health disorder or dual diagnosis. The data was lacking on true treatment duration and adherence. So sometimes that may misclassify exposure period. This wasn't like our other studies where they're doing pill counts 
they were basically doing kind of like validated estimates of, of care in terms of how long people were taking each of these. There was a lack of data regarding what they call time-varying co-founders, so whether or not a patient kind of was also using illicit drug use, did they become imprisoned at some point during the trial, um, were they no longer having a home, were they homeless now? So those type of things often claim to kind of relapse and overdose as well. Interestingly, uh, concordant, quote, low-risk medications with kind of enzyme induction or inhibition were not included. So I think that a lot of these kind of medications are CYP450 metabolized. So there are other drugs as well that are not in this class that could also be prescribed that could increase a patient's risk of overdose, especially kind of with methadone. Like I said before, the ICD-10 codes, um, they may not be 100% accurate at kind of capturing what really happens with a patient, but we're using that as our best estimate of what a non-fatal overdose would be. Also, the last thing I was going to say is non-fatal overdose was linked to hospitalized admitted patients. So it didn't really include information on patients that had non-fatal overdose that maybe uh, treated themselves at home, uh, presented to their PCP after an overdose. So maybe like they told me they used, like you see this at in our office, they used naloxone two days ago while they were using. They clearly don't need hospitalization at the moment, but they did have that event. So that wasn't captured. Um, the same with if someone just presented the ED and was kind of medically optimized and discharged directly from the ER and wasn't admitted, that wouldn't have been included. So a lot of stuff to talk about. Overall, though, I think it's it's really good. What do you think, Sonia? I think the point about only including overdoses that resulted in hospitalization is an important one because I also don't know what the standard for hospitalization is in the UK compared to the US. Like I know what gets you into the hospital here, but I'm not sure what the standards are in the UK in terms of how serious your disease needs to be to warrant an admission. So let, let me tell you about the results of this. And I think we'll have a little discussion here. So let me tell you about this cohort. It was 20,000 898 patients receiving opioid agonist therapy, and that accounted for 83,856 person years at risk. So kind of total amount of years that they analyzed. 72.5% received methadone, so very methadone heavy. 70% were male. The median age was 34 at treatment initiation and 38 at exit date. Median treatment duration was 632 days for methadone, 284 days for buprenorphine. I, I think both those are actually pretty impressive. Median follow-up duration was two and a half years for methadone, 1.9 years for patients receiving buprenorphine. Receipt of, quote, high-risk medications, so 25.5% received benzodiazepines, 37.3% received antidepressants, 13% received antipsychotics, 8.1% received Z-drugs, 8.1% received gabapentinoids, and 26.6% received opioids. What do you think of those numbers, Sonia? Just lots of scary polypharmacy. I mean, it's just, it makes me feel like I need to run a report on my patients and see uh, how I'm doing. I'm going to be honest, compared to my, like, I think like you, I, I'm, I'm kind of a hard line on benzos for the most part, but I, I think 37% for antidepressants would probably underrepresent my population, as would be the 13% for antipsychotics and the gabapentinoids of 8.1%. I think I've prescribed more of those than those numbers. Just throwing myself out there sacrificially as the, the polypharm doc? I don't know. I guess I, I've really in the last few years pulled back from using the antipsychotics with patients who don't have either severe psychotic depression that needs an adjunct above and beyond SSRIs you know, or an actual psychotic disorder. I, I feel like all these patients come out of treatment having been given quetiapine or olanzapine for like insomnia. And they want to continue it. And I have 
sort of push back on that and aim for other kind of safer sleeping pills, you know, like in the TCA category, if I have to use anything at all. So I feel like I get boxed into them mostly because it's either they're bipolar. So is a mood stabilizer or I'm using it as a booster for depression. But I, I think that you're right. Insomnia is a weak indication, but I do feel like just the population I take care of, I, I think I have higher prescribing of some of those. I wonder if a difference is that I see lots and lots of kind of middle-aged women in my addiction clinic and the idea that the medicine could cause weight gain. I don't know. It makes it like hot potato. They don't want it anymore. So a little bit about the overdose. So 4,512 out of 20,898, which is 21.6% of patients experienced a non-fatal overdose during the observation period. Interestingly, 60% of those overdoses all occurred during the first period of time when someone was on a, an opioid agonist therapy, and 54% had more than one episode. So it seems like, at least in this, that if you're going to have a non-fatal overdose, most likely with kind of starting the agonist, and um, the group that has overdoses, not surprisingly, has more than one for the most part. 12,973 overdoses resulted in hospitalization. So that's 15.47 per 100 person years. 3,739 out of 12,973, that's 29% of overdoses occurred with co-prescription of high-risk medications. So I, I changed the order of reporting here just to kind of go from the biggest bang for your buck to the, the lowest yield. And I think this is going to be surprising. So this kind of gives the weighted rate ratio of the riskiest substances down to the least risky in terms of concern here. So opioid agonist therapy with co-prescription of a drug of interest in terms of overdose risk, the highest was with gabapentinoids. And that had a weighted rate ratio of 2.22. Antipsychotics were second with a weighted rate ratio of 1.85. The Z drugs were third with a weighted rate ratio of 1.6, followed by benzodiazepines with a weighted rate ratio of 1.45, and then opioids with a weighted rate ratio of 1.28. And finally, antidepressants really weren't statistically significant in terms of an increased risk of non-fatal overdose. Yeah, that's a little worrisome. I was surprised because, you know, like I would say that I, I don't prescribe like Z drugs or benzos, but the antipsychotics and gabapentinoids were, were the highest two on that list. Not surprised that the opioids were the lowest, especially because this was a methadone-heavy population. So there's there's probably some degree of protection there. So in terms of oat modality and co-prescription overdose risk, um, buprenorphine was greater than methadone in terms of risk for gabapentinoids. So they had a higher weighted rate ratio of 3.10 versus 2.08 for patients on methadone. So it was riskier with buprenorphine than with methadone if you're giving gabapentin. Buprenorphine was also riskier than methamphetamines for antipsychotics with a weighted rate ratio of 2.21 compared to 1.91 for methadone. Buprenorphine was also riskier in terms of overdose risk compared to methadone for benzodiazepines with a weighted rate ratio of 2.15 versus 1.33. And methadone was greater than buprenorphine for opioids, however, so a weighted rate ratio of 1.67 to 1.33. And there was no uh, evidence of association between opioid agonist therapy modality and modifying risk for the Z drugs or antidepressants. So kind of, again, summarizing everything, if I were to kind of give you the one-liner, in terms of overdose risk with co-prescription for an opioid agonist for treatment of opioid use disorder, gabapentin followed by antipsychotics, followed by Z drugs, followed by benzodiazepines is your order of kind of riskiest co-prescribing from this trial. And when you look at the actual concurrent 
OAT therapy or the opioid agonist, actually buprenorphine was riskier than methadone with co-prescription of gabapentin, noids, uh, antipsychotics, and benzodiazepines. All, I thought, kind of relatively very surprising. It's interesting to me that buprenorphine was riskier than methadone with polypharmacy-related overdoses. I would not expect that, definitely. I, I will say that just kind of in the back of your mind, though, too, much smaller population was in terms of this trial, particularly with buprenorphine. But I thought that was interesting. And I wonder if some of that, I mean, we have lots of thoughts about this we can talk about, but um, I wonder if that also reflects not the drugs, but the docs. Like, are we lulled into a false sense of security? You mean with, with us who are prescribing buprenorphine? Yes. Would a doctor be more likely on someone on buprenorphine to prescribe a benzo or gabapentin than someone on methadone? Like maybe we feel safer and we're actually the problem. Right. And are doctors who are prescribing methadone more experienced? You know, usually they're specialists in addiction um, and are prescribing somehow better or differently. So we can talk about it more, but kind of, will these results help me in, in patient care? I'm an outpatient doc. I also do general practice, but also addiction medicine. I treat uh, patients with substance use disorder prescribing buprenorphine and psychotropic medications very frequently. I love my, my local psychiatrist, but the wait time in my area is 12 to 18 months for establishment with a psychiatrist if you have state insurance. So I, I love them to death. If they're not hospitalized, a lot of mental health issues come to me. Um, so I have a very robust prescription pattern with these. And also I have a, a level of comfort with them, which I never had before. Uh, when I was a resident, I am aware of the risk of respiratory suppression with many of these higher risk medication. And my own clinical practice is that I will co-prescribe antidepressants, antipsychotics, and gabapentin, noids, um, either Lyrica or pregabalin or gabapentin. And I'll do brief courses of opioids for post-operative pain, but I do not prescribe any benzodiazepines or Z drugs, um, mostly because there's other alternatives. And I, there's, in my opinion, not a great evidence for either of those drug classes for their indication. This large database cohort uh, study challenges uh, at least my previous misconceptions regarding the safety of the, the prescribing pattern, though. I, I'm certainly rethinking about the gabapentin and the antipsychotics really, in all honest, weren't even on my radar as a concern for co-prescribing. While acknowledging certainly prescribing these medications as new starts definitely is something I want to reconsider moving forward. I don't think that this study is enough, though, for me to kind of start going in and, and de-prescribing these medicines for people that are currently stable on it. So I think that's a big other separate question, sort of like de-prescribing opioids. Is, is the effort, time, and risk there worth doing that for this kind of outcome? Well, right. And clinically, of course, patients who are already stable on this combination are patients who are not having issues with it. I mean, I guess there's always a chance you could become unstable and overdose in the future. But de-prescribing stable patients, you're right, is different from initiating it on kind of all comers. One other thing I'd love to see besides kind of like a study looking at deep, whether de-prescribing these was helpful or harmful, which is hard to do. A lot of these medications are dose dependent with respiratory suppression. I mean, we've seen other uh, studies before talking about uh, benzodiazepines, but also gabapentin ceiling effect or kind of a, a dose depressant effect on respiratory suppression. So I would love to see kind of dosing thresholds that kind of make a difference here and see whether or not that there's like a safer level and whether or not there's kind of like a J-shaped curve at some prescribing threshold where you really get into trouble, sort of like we see with opioids. 
Yeah, if anyone listening is a geriatrician, I've seen some really excellent de-prescribing articles from the geriatrics literature about taking, you know, broad swaths of people off benzodiazepines, gabapentinoids, other sedatives, and then putting them back on if the patients request it. And some, you know, huge percentage of patients never need to go back on those drugs. So there's definitely de-prescribing literature, but I've never seen it in the opiate use disorder population. Yeah, so overall, I thought this was a really cool study, challenges some of my previous thoughts. I love these kind of articles that force me to think and think about things a little differently. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I when something is different from what you expected, that's when you should pay particularly close attention to it. Yeah. Well, John, thank you so much for sharing that article with us. I did want to share some feedback from our audience. So we put out a call on social media after our episode 21 to 30 roundup to see which articles people like the most from the most recent 10 episodes that we did. And I just want to say that you won. Your article on vaping cessation was the one that people most liked the best. So go vaping cessation. And the only person who liked the Addiction Survivors article, which was my favorite article, was uh, my mom. So thanks, mom, for being supportive of the Addiction Survivors article that I also loved. That's a good article, too. I feel like that's another one that I think our patients probably like that one more, too. Well, thank you. That's very supportive. Thank you for listening to the Addiction Medicine Journal Club. The best part of any journal club is the conversation, and we want to hear what you have to say. To have your opinions about the articles included in a future episode, send us your comments on all the social medias, or not all, but some, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Spotify, email. You can join our Facebook group. I'll put all the links in the show notes. Our original theme music was composed and performed by Benjamin Kennedy. Audio editing by Aaron McHugh. Produced by Dr. Patrick Beeman and Ars Longa Media. Addiction Medicine Journal Club is intended for educational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. The views expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect those of our employers or the authors of the articles we review. All patient information has been modified to protect their identities. Thank you for being part of the conversation and have a great day.